Welcome to Economic Frontiers, the show where we interview leading economists about their research on economics, technology, and innovation. I'm Andre Fratkin, and today our guest is Greg Lewis, Senior Researcher at Microsoft Research New England. Greg is one of the world's experts on pricing and marketplace design. In this conversation, we talk about the economic perspective on online platforms. What is the role of data in setting prices and designing platform policies? Why are economists so useful to companies such as Amazon, Google, and Microsoft? Do theoretical models still matter in the age of big data? And has the chicken and egg problem gotten easier to solve over time? Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks very much for having me, Andre. So today we're going to be talking about uh, a lot of issues relating to the role of economics in modern technology companies. What does economics have to offer? What are the key challenges? And what do we think might happen going forward? So as a bit of kind of a, a start to the conversation, we've seen that companies such as Microsoft and Google uh, and eBay have recently been building up uh, large teams of economists, so people with PhDs in economics, uh, to do what? What, what, what? what have these people been doing? Uh, and why, why are these companies hiring economists? I think one of the things that's been interesting about this is that different companies have been hiring people for different things. My advisor, Pat Byer, is at Amazon. There he's, at least to start, been very interested in pricing, which is a natural activity for Amazon to be thinking about, and then also branching out into the logistics of which things should be shipped, which objective functions should these companies be optimizing, what are the key economic drivers of growth, how do you forecast demand over Thanksgiving, these kinds of things. Uh, whereas somebody like uh, Steve Tadellis sitting at eBay has been much more interested in things like the reputation system, which is really an eBay-specific kind of phenomenon. It happens on Amazon as well, but it's not quite as important to Amazon. Susan Athey at Microsoft has been thinking about Bing and uh, uh, display advertising and search advertising and how to improve uh, the way in which we monetize in those dimensions. So really. I think economists bring quite a lot to the table, but it's not like it's just one thing that they bring. It's a range of different uh, uh, parts of expertise that they've they've got from the academic training. So that's really interesting because those those are quite diverse activities, and they're not typically things that economists actually study in their PhD. So. Uh, what is the advantage of an economist uh, looking at this type of problem as opposed to, let's say, in the case of logistics for Amazon, you would think that there's a person in operations research, or in the case of search engine design, you would think that there is a computer scientist focusing on machine learning that would be the appropriate person. So what is, what is that econ economist perspective on this? Yeah, so I think uh, the, the, what economists bring to the table is, is really a good idea of how to think about economic modeling. So um, if you think about the case of logistics, Amazon does have many highly talented operations research professionals working in these kinds of questions. But the way Pat described this to me is you have to know what to optimize. In order to know what to optimize, you have to know what the trade-offs are, the economic trade-offs are that Amazon is making by, say, delivering things in one day relative to two days. Economists would sit there and think, well, one-day delivery attracts customers a little bit better. People like one-day delivery. In the long run, this may make a big difference to Amazon's growth trajectory versus sort of uh, the standalone retail store that we're used to every day. And, and economists are very good at thinking of those trade-offs and then working out how one might think about quantifying things 
Optimization is a skill that uh, people know are extremely good at and probably in some sense should be left to them. But what objective function is a harder problem? And how do you connect that objective function to data is also a problem that economists, particularly economists in industrial organization, really have some comparative advantage in. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, for the listeners out there, um, industrial organization sounds like a very broad term. So what exactly uh, do you mean by industrial organization in the case of economics and specifically empirical industrial organization, which is uh, the application of industrial organization to actual data? Yeah, so industrial organization uh, is historically the part of economics that is concerned with market power. So it's typically concerned with the behavior of firms and market power. We really mean the departure of, of classical economics from sort of these perfectly competitive markets where there are lots of firms all competing to supply something to a customer and therefore price gets driven down basically down to cost. Industrial organization is all about um, uh, situations in which there are few companies and because there are few companies, each company is able to maintain substantial markups to make money. The, the classic example of this would be a monopoly. Uh, a monopoly uh, is in a position of having a lot of market power. And then people in industrial organization have studied how companies act to maintain their market power, what kinds of strategies they, they follow, and then the implications of this for consumers, which leads to questions in antitrust, for example, should we allow these companies to merge, given that together they may be able to exert market power. Um, so that's, you know, that's the sort of the discipline as a whole, which is a very big field. Um, but one thing that's come out of this focus on market power has been that we need models of strategic behavior by firms and then also by consumers. And those models and the connection of those models to data is exactly what's useful to companies because companies have a lot of data at their disposal nowadays, but they're not quite sure how to interpret it. And, uh, and the formal modeling exercise is very useful. So. You, you bring up a strategic behavior, but in some sense, a lot of industrial organization can be done even without thinking about strategic behavior. So just thinking about uh, a consumer is making a choice about what car to buy, sure. uh, how much do they value different cars or different characteristics of cars. Solving that type of problem is a very traditional industrial organization problem. Um, of course, there are many difficulties in doing that. but um, but it's not, it's not necessary to, to include strategic interactions to, uh, to be doing industrial organization, I guess. So I, I think I, I, I disagree with you a little bit. Historically, it really has been about the strategy. And, you know, why do we understand why people, how people choose cars in terms of characteristics? We went through that exercise because we wanted to understand demand. But really, demand was going to be this input into this model of how firms competed, which is where we were really going. Along the way, it turns out that these techniques that people and I were developing, the, the, this, this paper that I think you're implicitly referencing, Barry Levinson Pecos for demand estimation, you know, that then became very useful in a lot of different places. And you're right, companies today care as much about that piece as they do about the strategic piece. I want to know what my consumers value, what they, uh, what they want. And therefore, what I should deliver to them, if I'm, if I'm in the case of Amazon, if I'm choosing between, you know, getting the goods to you faster or trying to make them cheaper by driving down markups from my suppliers, which should I be investing in? Which is the one that's going to get people on my platform? So that demand estimation piece is definitely important, but it's 
it's kind of a recent phenomenon, and I, and maybe maybe you're right in just pointing out that you know empirical I/O, this empirical part of I/O connected to data, is also kind of recent. You know, as as late as the '80s, people were still basically game theorists in I/O, uh, and that's only changed you know the last twenty years. Got it. And and there's also this uh, this interesting aspect of the change, which is. Uh, traditionally, economists are thinking about how do you structure the optimal society or what is the right way to regulate uh, market power. But now, uh, with these uh, tech platforms, it's really how do you optimize for the specific tech platform and what what is what should that platform even be optimizing for is a really big question uh, within it, within each of these companies because, as you say, there are some trade offs. So. Thinking about your your work uh, with uh, Microsoft, if you can talk about it, uh, what are some trade-offs that you're thinking about in terms of uh, the design of marketplaces or, or pricing? That's an interesting question. I, I have to think quite hard to think about what I actually can talk about. Um, but I think you know one of the sort of generic questions that I've thought about a little bit in my work is this question of what value platforms can add. Um, because really, you know, if you think about somewhere like eBay or a dating platform uh, such as uh, OkCupid, you know, a lot of the work that economists have done so far has said platforms are places where people get together. The value of a platform is getting a lot of people together and getting those people talking to each other. That's kind of obvious in the case of a dating platform. But what we haven't spent so much time thinking about is what else can be brought to the table. And I think one of the things that most modern platforms bring to the table is really good search design. Um, I want to find somebody to date. I'd like to have some way of filtering them so that I, I find the kind of person that would be good for me. And on eBay, I want to find uh, a bargain. So I need to be able to find a used good because I'm not going to get the new good very cheaply. How do I find the used goods? And a lot of this stuff has been um, has sort of has sort of run into the technology. You know, it's it's at, at first it was just sort of categorization. Later, it was actually algorithms trying to do the matching. Um, and from economists' point of view, these matching algorithms are interesting because uh, there are these externalities. You know, if um, I make it very easy uh, for people to identify. Um, attractive woman on a dating website for some notion of what attractive is, and fortunately that differs across people. But, but if, if that's the case, then you might imagine that people who are relatively less attractive will get far fewer invitations or far fewer dates. And so, you know, this technology, which seems kind of very benign sitting in the middle, really has implications for everybody in the market. And, and not all of those are good. And so that's one of the things I've been thinking about a little bit recently is how do we kind of uh, formalize this notion of the role that a, a platform plays in matching people together and then ask, you know, who wins and who loses when uh, that platform design improves in some dimension. Got it. And thinking about who wins and who loses is kind of a, an interesting question because uh, you might think that what really matters is the overall welfare of, of people on the platform, right? Um, but that's really uh, hard to define in a lot of cases. And furthermore, um, different sides of the platform, so let's say buyers and sellers, might have different outside options. And therefore, uh, they, you might want to cater to one side more than the other 
in order to keep them on your platform. So uh, trying to figure out which of these uh, sides of the market is, is the one that you want to uh, attract more or what are the policies to favor that, that side of the market is, is I think a really important problem for, for all these platforms. So for example, with Google, you want the searchers coming in, but you also want to have the advertisers wanting to participate in bidding for these, uh, for these uh, advertising slots. I guess it all seems very complicated. And, and in fact, when I talk to managers uh, in various Silicon Valley companies, that's what they tell me. They're like, well, we know these trade-offs exist, but it's really, really complicated. And so we're going to do something simple. Is, has that been your experience or do you think, or can you give some examples where the approach of thinking things through and going a little more in depth actually has paid off? So, um, at least in my experience thus far, I, I don't think we're really at the point of being able to give really uh, great advice to managers other than to say, look, it's clear that this heterogeneity in the marketplace. It's clear that who's going to win and who's going to lose from this is varies. In the work I've done so far, you can sort of point to who's likely to win and who's likely to lose. And I think in most companies, you can probably do the same exercise. People who really have a lot of domain expertise can say, well, if I change this algorithm, who's winning, who's losing out of it? Um, connecting that to sort of this, this, um, this probability of leaving your platform is something that seems to be in the realm of A-B experiments, right? And but we have sort of a design of experiments problem. You're thinking about rolling out a new algorithm, you know it's gonna hurt some people. You wanna know if those people would leave, so you need to know how sensitive they are to this change in the algorithm. Now, in order to kind of evaluate that, you'd like to run sort of, sort of tests on that specific targeted group. And so now you're starting to get kind of quite fine-tuned experiments. And I can see why people at companies might be saying, well, this is a little bit too complicated, at least to think through for the moment, and I'd rather do something a little bit simpler. Um, but I don't think that's how things are going to be forever. I think that uh, we're starting, this is relatively new stuff. We're starting to get a better understanding of where those trade-offs are. A lot of my colleagues uh, in computer science are working on exactly these questions of optimal design of experiments. And so if you give them a, a well-thought-out statistical model of how you think the world works, you know, up to some parameters that you don't know, they're going to find a very good way to test out those parameters. But we're not quite at the point yet where the economics has converged on models that we trust enough to kind of hit them with the ML computer science community and say, let's do, uh, let's work on optimal testing of these models, or optimal uh, learning of the parameters in these models. So that, that, that seems like a very high level discussion. So can you give a comp concrete example in which you might want to learn the parameters uh, of, of an economic model? Yeah, sure. So, um, Let's think about uh, the problem faced by eBay or Amazon when they think about which um, sellers to allow onto their marketplace, for example. So one kind of problem is if I, if I allow uh, everybody to join my marketplace, I get a very thick marketplace. I get a lot of competing uh, people who are willing to compete for customers and that presumably presents customers with an array of diverse alternatives and also possibly a lower cost in the face of competition. But on the other hand, I want to offer certain platform-wide guarantees. So I want to be able to say, everybody in our platform is reliable. Everybody in our platform is going to get the goods to you in two days flat. And 
those two things are incompatible, right? I either have to exclude people who are unreliable or exclude people who are going to be, you know, shipping from Alaska and therefore in order to get them to do the custom in two days is going to be virtually impossible. Uh, or I have to, you know, or I have to have everybody and then I have kind of this thing. So I have this population management problem, which primarily companies seem to think about on the seller side. You know, it's, it's un- there's some, there's some pruning of bad buyers as well, fraudulent buyers, right? But the sort of two-sided pruning. And in those cases, you know, you, you, you kind of want to know, um, can I nudge people to become better citizens? You know, if, 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 if my problem is that uh, the person in Alaska can't get it to people in two days, can I, you know, can I find a way to, to force them to become better and do it in two days or to force them to behave better? Uh, through changing my system, or is that just something that I can't possibly do? You want to know how sensitive they are to the various nudges you have at your disposal. So you're thinking about taxes or differential fees? Uh, yes, for exactly. Selling. So differential fees would be a nice sort of standard policy instrument. The other policy instrument that I think people you know have underestimated but seems to have a lot of power in practice is the search algorithm itself, right? You, uh, these search algorithms are usually opaque. Uh, sellers on eBay don't quite know what gets them to the top of the search results in response to a query. But uh, as they discovered when they made uh, free shipping something that pushed you way up the rankings, suddenly everybody started offering free shipping. So people figured it out. You know, the algorithm itself, the exposure, the, the, the possibility of, you know, of being exposed to a customer who might, might buy your product, very powerful. And if you just start upweighting certain features of the seller, you know, what the seller is offering, uh, then pretty soon sellers will either figure it out or they'll die, uh, in the sense that they won't, you know, they won't be on the platform selling very much longer. So, uh, so it's pretty clear how the platform can influence the behavior of sellers. It's not clear what the response of those sellers could be. But the trade-off, of course, is that there might be some buyers that really want a good deal, and they don't really care if they get the good in two days or in five days. And in fact, that, that seems to be a bet that this new company, Jet.com, is, is making right. regarding their deliveries. And, and kind of the economist's role in this would be to just enumerate the various trade-offs and for each of the trade-offs to uh, try to measure what's going on. So one of the key benefits of ensuring that every seller on your platform will deliver within two days is that consumers can know about this and that might induce even more consumers to come to the platform. So uh, measuring that inducement effect is going to be uh, really important for determining how important this policy is to pursue as, as a platform. So, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, and it's not, it's not easy, right? Because a lot of these things are long-run run effects, and I think this is where some of the experiments don't quite give you the right answer, right? You, you see that you get some sort of response over the 10 days you run this A-B experiment, and you think that's the end of the day, you know, the right answer, and actually... Some of the stuff takes quite a lot longer. There, there's a sense in which I feel like um, economics is subservient to strategy in the way that maybe you were saying before. Economists are good at, and we aspire to be very good at, um, enumerating what the possibilities are and in some sense putting out there a, a possibility frontier. You know, you can have A or you can have B, but you can't have both. And at some level, you know, it's a higher level decision as to where a company wants to be and what they want to market themselves are and what they want to stamp their vision as being. It's, it's hard, I think, uh, in this marketplace with so many platforms, especially for newer platforms, to be at all incoherent about what your vision is. You know, we're going to be the company that delivers you your products 
fast, reliably, and they're going to be good products. That's sort of what Amazon's all about. Uh, it's true, they could also be the company that gave you the option to have it in five days slowly, and maybe they can do that, but there's a, there's a danger of sort of diluting their message in the marketplace. And that message matters because, as you say, the message is what draws people in. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think of economists as being in the role primarily, at least, uh, at least at the moment, of, uh, of saying, you know, this is what we think you can get, and then you tell us what you want. Got it. So one, one thing that economists should be good at, but I, but I find that they're not, is uh, actually thinking about what the right fees to set are for the, for the marketplace. <laughs> uh, I, I guess uh, I was wondering whether you have any, any thoughts on, the, on that. So let's say you're an eBay or you're an Amazon and you want to choose you know, which side of the market do you leverage a transaction fee on and what should that fee be? And how can the data help inform what that fee should be? Yeah, so I mean, some thoughts off the top of my head. One is uh, you're constrained by norms a lot, right? We typically don't make buyers pay a lot. Uh, and if you change that norm, you're probably going to face a very strong mass exodus. So, you know, there's a, there's a different world in which people are not going to be that, uh, that price sensitive, but in the world in which they're accustomed to getting everything for free, they're extremely price sensitive. So, you know, so that, that constrains you. And so then you know where you're extracting the fees from. You're going to be extracting them from the sellers. Well, you know, in some markets, that's not, that's not actually true. So, for example, on Airbnb, there, there are also guest fees. That's true. You're right. So it's exposed. I guess it's a different... Was there a pre-Airbnb in which there was a different norm? I'm trying to... It is really this question of, like, what are you used to? Um, you know, I think... I think the buyers would revolt on eBay if you were to suddenly start charging them fees. Um, but you're right. Maybe, maybe now going forward on Airbnb, you manage to uh, every every Airbnb competitor manages to extract money from the buyers. I'm not sure. Um, I mean, we know we sort of so we know what the theory on this says. The theory on this says you extract uh, your money from the more uh, price uh, uh, inelastic sides. The pot the part of the market that's least likely to flee if you raise prices on them. Um, and it depends a lot also on whether there's multi-homing or single homing. So by that, I mean whether the people on either side are joining just one platform or whether they're across multiple platforms. It's typically the case that uh, where the one side is single homing, so where, for example, we think of uh, the case of, of newspapers and advertisers and people reading the newspapers, Advertise will typically advertise across multiple newspapers, uh, but readers will typically read, you know, one newspaper, maybe two newspapers. But if they're, you know, if they've got strong political preferences, it might just be the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And in that case, what you want to do is you want to extract uh, the rents primarily from the advertisers. Um, and what you hold out as the carrot to get them pay you money is this sort of monopoly readership that you control, the people who really want your content. And so, you know, econ theory gives you some idea of where to extract. Um, what it, as you say, what maybe we're not quite as good at is how exactly, what the exact fee is to extract. Again, we have theory on this, and, you know, basically it amounts to calculating elasticities. Um, but it's elasticities of marginal types. So this is something my, my colleague, Glenn Wild, has worked on. And, you know, you really have to understand who are the people who are most likely to leave your platform when you change the fees? It's not your general population you're worried about. There are some 
you know, New York Times readers who wouldn't leave if you raised their prices quite a lot, but there's some subpopulation that's really sensitive. And, and so you kind of have to know, um, you, you'd kind of like to, to do the pricing experimenting, experimentation there. And you know that you can do a little bit through coupons, right? So you can do some sort of uh, experimentation, see if you can get a few more people on or a few more people off with coupons. But it's hard to know often uh, what what the change is going to be. And this is exactly the problem that you mentioned earlier of demand estimation. What's the demand for my product? How does it change my price? And and I'd like to point out that in some sense you simplified that. First of all, many newspapers have a price as well, so you are extracting. Uh, money from both sides of the platform and and second of all um, what what is really important in that case is these uh, cross-side externalities how much is the marginal user worth to the advertiser so it's so in 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 this sense it's not just a simple elasticity how responsive is each side to to the fee that you're charging but also what are what are these different spillovers across the different types of agents within your platform? Yeah, you're right. I mean, so the, the standard sort of monopoly pricing formula is you charge people, uh, you know, what it costs you to make the product and then you charge them a markup, which is related to the elasticity. And it's true in the platform case that it's a little bit different. You uh, charge them the cost again, you charge them a markup, which reflects how much they like your product and how much, you know, how, how price insensitive they are. And then you discount them back by how many people they'll attract on the other side. In the case of newspapers and advertising, of course, we don't think advertisers typically attract more readers. So, in fact, that, that discount probably is going to raise the price a bit more. You'd kind of like to exclude some advertisers, even if they would be profitable on their own, because you're going to destroy your readership a little bit. And, you know, I think we all understand that from flipping through magazines, that there are some people that have decided to find everything through advertising and turn off some readers and there are other people who are quite careful about uh, preserving some sort of high quality content uh, to advertising ratio. So yeah, you're right. There, there are these things, but but none of these um, none of these kinds of issues are unsettled in econ theory, right? They're they're all pretty they're all pretty crisp. Um, you know, we have these models in quite a lot of generality. Uh, if you think that the world is as simple as people choosing newspapers and depending on the price and maybe uh, depending on how many other people, what other people are on the other side, we know how to work that out uh, in principle. Um, what turns out to be hard in practice is actually putting numbers to that. Yeah, and I guess the hard part about estimating these elasticities is that what you really care about is the long run elasticity. So let's say that we ran an A-B experiment where we just changed the, the fee of our platform by a little bit and saw what happened. Well, in the short run, they might not even be any response at all because people might not have noticed yep. or they might not have made the appropriate adjustments to switch platforms. But in the long run, this might happen or new platforms may arise as you know in competition by observing the fact that you're, you as a platform are charging very high fees and that's uh, inefficient. And so, or not inefficient, but that leaves room for, for entry. So, um, so knowing how big those threats are when choosing the platform fee structure, it's something that's, I don't want to say unanswerable by the data, but it is hard to think of a very simple way to get at that at those magnitudes. Yeah, and I mean, one thing you pointed to is sort of salience, right? So 
you worried on the one hand that I change my fees in, in the experiment and I see not much happens, but actually three months later, people notice. The other thing I'm really worried about in practice, if I roll out a sort of, if I was running a small experiment, I moved to a platform-wide fee change, is that's very salient. So everybody might simultaneously re-optimize at exactly that point to leave my platform. So yeah, so th this is a this is certainly a problem. Um, you, I think companies are reluctant, therefore, to make these changes very often uh, until they feel like they're really out of whack. Um, and and you probably want to do some robustness checking, which is I think what most sensible people would do in this situation is you come up with some sort of elasticity, but you're treated as though it's the truth. You say, well. This is what I got on my A-B experiment. It looks like that's probably the right number, but let's say the number was one and a half times as big or half as big. Does this still look like a good idea? Or does it look like it's now a whole lot more marginal? And, you know, in, um, in most of econometrics, we're not Bayesians, but in planning, we really should be Bayesians. Uh, really, people should be thinking a little bit about what they actually think they know and what their priors were and how much the, the data is able to move their priors. And, uh, I think you can learn stuff from maybe experiments. I think I think you can really learn in some in some places you can learn quite a lot pretty easily. In pricing, it's often a lot harder to learn something. But maybe you learn something from an experiment and you run a survey and you look at past experiences, similar changes at other websites, and you try to put piece together some sort of composite picture and you do some scenario planning. Uh, I mean, this is this is this is sort of what I feel as the corporate reality, right? If there's no one answer, there's no magic bullet. You end up piecing together a lot of different pieces of information. Yeah, so it's not an elegant academic solution, regardless no. <laughs> of how many academics are sitting around uh, the table trying to make the decision. Yeah, exactly. And then, then, then you know, and, and, and the, the academic voice at the table is, we have this point of view. It's a very clear, it's a very crisp point of view. We think the answer is X. And that's sort of attractive, and I think that gets you a seat at the table. But ultimately, you're going to end up having to defend that point of view pretty aggressively, or change your mind. And you're probably going to change your mind sometimes as well. Yeah, uh, that's uh, that's definitely true. There are other considerations that are uh, outside of standard uh, optimization theories and economics that uh, that matter that matter for decision making. Yeah, exactly. And things that we we haven't yet put into models. Things that somebody at a meeting says, and you go. Yeah, that sounds right. I don't, I don't know quite how to fit that into my model right now. Maybe I'll, you know, give me, unfortunately, academia, give me three, four months and I'll get back to you. <laughs> um, there, so there are uh, a couple more topics I, I want to touch on. Uh, one of those topics is um, one that's been uh, a topic of a lot of discussion within the economics community, but I think outside people still don't quite uh, get it is uh, what is the difference between the economist's approach and the machine learner's approach to uh, studying data? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. I think it's a very it's a very interesting question and I think people are evolving. But the background I come from is structural um, econometrics. And in structural econometrics, it basically means um, a commitment to a model. So when you view data, you view data through the lens of a model. You have to say exactly what your model is. And that forces all kinds of restrictions on what's going on and how you interpret your results. Um, machine learning is model free. Uh, it's typically, you give me a problem and I'll give you an algorithm that solves it. I think one of the things that's uh, very appealing about machine learning 
is exactly this practicality. Here's a problem, you know, here's a nail, we'll give you a hammer for that nail. And it's very uh, specialized and it's also fully implemented. So one of the things that's a little frustrating about structural econometrics sometimes is we write down a model, we give you an optimization problem, and then we can say, good luck, go optimize. Uh, but you know, ML is often, this is the exact algorithm you're gonna use. The problem is that with ML, you'll often do a very good job at prediction. So you'll be able to say, um, you know, this, we think that this person should be classified as an A type or a B type, or we think that revenues next year will be this, or we think that, you know, with, you know, with high accuracy, I can predict the price of this product as a function of its characteristics. But we don't know what that means uh, because we don't have a model that sort of underlies it. And we often don't understand causal relationships either. So, you know, we know that this is, we now know that, you know, this, this price is correlated with these characteristics. A, um, a very good model for explaining how much a PC will cost will be to take, you know, something about their screen size and then something about the keyboards and, uh, and you know, what Intel chip line it's running. And that'll tell you a lot, which is great. Um, and now I ask you, you know, what if, uh, what if I were to change the price of a of an Intel computer and ask about the quantity that's sold? And and you know, even if I did this exercise, like quantity on the left hand side and run the ML model with the right hand side, I might get something very silly, like that, you know, quantity is increasing in price, and that might be a really good predictive model in the sense that it does a great job of explaining you know, the data, but it might, might do horribly in the sense that if I actually were to change price, that, that would not be what happens to quantity. It wouldn't go up, right? That, that doesn't make any sense. And so that, that concept is very unintuitive to a lot of people. Uh, the, the reason that there could be a difference is that the data that the machine learning model is trained on um, it was generated in a certain way, and no one in that data set arbitrarily, uh, let's say, changed their prices and just to see what would happen to the demand. Exactly. Whereas that's really what you were thinking about as a decision maker that's trying to set a price or change some other policy. Now, uh, in order to use the data, in order to predict what would happen if you arbitrarily change the price, you need to have some some model that relates some some. Uh, what economists call structural or machine learners call generative model of how people make decisions and how uh, changes in price would affect those decisions. I think uh, actually spreading the knowledge that there is this big difference uh, is, is really important for the economics profession because one, it matters. It matters for making the right decisions. And two, it's good for the economics profession because that's what economists are kind of uh, specialized in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and there are layers of this, right? So, you know, first layer, I'm going to estimate demand. I have price on the right hand side. I learned this relationship from my data and and it's wrong because there's no experimental variation in price to begin with. And you say, as you say, nobody's actually moving around the price arbitrarily. It was very much correlated with what was going on. So that that's a problem. So, okay, so now I can do a little bit better. Maybe I have some experimental data and I can really try and improve the predictive performance and that can give me another uh, better equation. And now I think to myself, should I, uh, should I, should I, I now know the demand is downward sloping, should I uh, then maybe lower my price a little bit and get a few more customers, I can think about that modeling. And then somebody in a business meeting says, well, what are my competitors going to do? And you go, oh, that's something that's not in my model either. 
And now you want to think a little bit harder about like, well, okay, now I need to write down a model which people are actually responding to each other. And this is exactly what sort of structural IO is good at is saying, look, you know, there are these things that we think happen in marketplaces. We think that people set prices optimally. We think they compete against each other. We think that if you write down uh, that model and you're willing to believe it, then we can tell you what's going to happen in these scenarios. But if you don't want to write that down, well, then, you know, we kind of have to hold a lot of other stuff fixed. We kind of have to just believe, for example, that everybody else is just going to do what they're doing last period. Um, you know, then we can give you some predictions. Um, and so I think, you know, I think the discipline of, of, of having a model is a very useful one, almost regardless of whether you're going to make the model simple or complicated. It's just important to have a model and to take it seriously and to think about what would be required in order to learn that model. Got it. Uh, you bring up an, inter an interesting example um, in, the, in the fact that, well, first of all, there, there are kind of two prediction problems. One, what would happen to demand? And two, what would your competitors do? Yeah. But it's very easy to see that you have a lot of consumers as, a, as an online platform. You have millions of consumers, but you probably only have one or two competitors. <laughs> yeah, right. So that makes uh, any machine learning algorithm uh, useless in this case. But it also, in general, makes most estimation or statistical methods uh, useless. So you really do have to rely, rely on some model of the world. Is the, do we think that the models that economists have of competition in this case, are, are, they, are they good? Uh, <laughs> is there any example in which they do a good job of predicting or are they more simply that, oh, well, you should just think about, is there anything preventing your competitor from lowering prices as well and how would that affect demand? So I think there are some, so it has been some work that shows that they're not bad models. So, um, and I know there are other examples, but the one I'm thinking of right now is a paper by Alihotaksu and Steve Puller on the uh, Texas electricity market. And they're thinking there about, um, about how firms uh, at the start of a market uh, actually sort of start competing with each other. and. Uh, and you know whether they're bidding profiles that they eventually submit, and it's a very complicated market. I don't know if you know anything about electricity, but it's just it's very messy. You have to submit basically these supply curves as an electricity generator. It's kind of a complicated thing to learn, and they show that you know over time, um, big players end up best responding to everybody else. And you know, equilibrium is this idea that everybody should be best responding to everybody else. And so people are doing pretty well. They're they're doing the best they can given what everybody else is doing. Um, I have a paper with uh, Ariel Pekas and Uli Dorzelski looking at the British electricity market in a slightly different setting. And there we find slightly more mixed evidence. We find that people do eventually reach equilibrium, but it takes them uh, three and a half years in a market where they only compete every month. So in Stephen uh, Ali's example, uh, it's much more like they compete every day. So the process goes a whole lot faster. So I think, you know, I think it's not a settled question as to whether the equilibrium is the right way to think about this. I don't think we know that that's the right answer. I think it definitely varies. But something as simple as saying, you know, um, if everybody can do this best response exercise, if you're going to do this, I should do this. If I'm going to do this, if you're going to do this. If that's an easy exercise for everybody to do, probably not crazy to expect that we end up in equilibrium pretty quickly. That's a hard exercise to do if it's hard for me to conjecture what the world would be like if you were to price slightly differently, well then, yeah, I should expect living to be a bit slower. Um, either of those things is probably better than assuming that competition is not going to do anything in response, uh, especially if I'm making a big move. 
Uh, well, that, that's fair on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, you do have some policies which are very opaque. So if you change the, your recommendation algorithm, in theory, your competitors should respond. But in practice, will they even know that you changed your ranking algorithm or how you specifically changed it? I mean, these things are hard to detect. Yeah, and I think, I think also it really varies across industries and, and where competition happens, right? There are industries in which price competition is fierce. You know, this is a market in which really people think that the way they win customers is by competing on price. There are other markets in which, uh, you know, people think that, for example, the recommendation engine really matters. And the recommendation engine I have is not something that my competitor has to respond to at all, really. Uh, because, you know, to some extent, I'm going to drag a few customers away from them. But it's, you know, it's somewhat technological, right? They're going to keep innovating and we're going to keep innovating. And they're both going to be opaque. And they're not like free controls. We can just kind of move easily um, to sort of match the other person. Uh, so, you know, price is somewhat special. Price is something that's easy to change. It's pretty transparent, usually, to my competitors what I'm doing. And so, you know, uh, you know thinking about um, cloud computing, for example, you know, Amazon and Microsoft and Google have been throwing their prices down recently. I mean, on a very stock price decline. Why? Because they all think it's you know a very, very important growth area for their companies and whoever gets as many customers on the platform wins. And so they're in a price war. Um, you know, that's, that, that just sort of makes sense. And if you, if you were to sit here, at, I don't think I'm saying anything conventional, I'd say this, if I was sitting here at Microsoft thinking, what would I do if I dropped my price? Well, you know, I have to think a little bit about what Amazon would do because um, that's the main dimension in which people are competing. Well, I mean, this brings up an interesting question then. Uh, why are these prices identical? And if not, why are they different? Is it something about the beliefs of the competitors or is it something about the technology of the competitors? What do, what do you think? So uh, I believe so. I, this is a factual question that I shouldn't, I don't believe I know the answer. I think they're not quite identical. I think that Microsoft and Amazon have pretty similar prices. I think Google may be a little bit cheaper, but they are offering different technologies, right? Uh, so Microsoft is on Azure. It's linked to some of our other services, it integrates with some of our enterprise software. Uh, Amazon, on the other hand, was first to market. They got it a little bit quicker. They have some innovations. We price slightly differently. There are different things. I think catering to slightly different customer bases at some level. Um, you know, but, but as we talked about earlier, what matters is the marginal customer. And so you've got these existing customer bases. You obviously want to keep them. But there's a, you know, getting more and more people in the cloud. You want to know who's going next. And the question is, what would really make those next people go? And at some level, you know, this is a tech market. So... Product design, quality, reliability of service, these things really matter. And everybody's fighting really hard to get the best possible product out there. Um, but the one thing that you could move on the short term is price. And so, you know, people are, people are doing what they can. Got it. Um, and this kind of brings up uh, the last topic that I wanted to talk about, which was the chicken and the egg problem, oh, yeah. which is a classic uh, problem when people are thinking about platforms. So. Uh, Kind of the brief synopsis is that a lot of things are very valuable at scale, say Facebook, where everyone in the world is, is on it potentially and can uh, interact with each other and find out uh, information about each other. Um, but at the beginning, there's very little value to anyone joining uh, the network. So um, 
as as kind of the digital era has progressed, do do you think that the chicken and the egg problem is becoming uh, less severe, or is in fact more severe because incumbents are now sitting at all the major <laughs> platforms, and it's really hard to topple an incumbent? Yeah. So two questions. I you know I think firstly, if you're in a new industry. The chicken and egg problem is the same problem it's ever been. And in fact, actually, it might be worse because consumer attention is fragmented. We're, we're, we're people who work across many, many devices. There are many, many new apps floating to the top of our, you know, of our attention. Unless you've got a really cool product, it's hard to get anybody on. It's hard to get anybody on, then you can't build up the platform that would make a compelling product for everybody else. So this, the standard chicken and egg problem but in a world where I think, you know, it's harder to get people's attention than it used to be. So I, I think I would disagree in that actually the technology to get people's attention is much cheaper now than it used to be. In the sense that, let's say I'm a small capital constrained firm. Yeah. Um, before, in order to get people's attention, I might have to pay a lot of fixed costs for commercial uh, on TV, maybe, or for some other type of. Uh, advertisement. Whereas now, uh, if I have some sense of who my platform is going to benefit the most in the short run, then I can start acquiring just those customers and then slowly build out the platform to achieve scale. So this kind of assumes that uh, at the beginning, there are at least some people for whom the there's still some value in the platform, but then there at least becomes a path to achieving scale. Whereas before, uh, it might have been more difficult. Yeah, you make a good point. I mean, you're, 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 you're giving me a basic lesson supply and one, right? This has become a, it's hard to get people's attention, but we have better technology to get people's attention at the same time. So the costs of getting people's attention are falling at the same time as the demand is falling. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, and I think that that's been sort of more successful in the case where sort of a recommend algorithm could do well. If you like this, then you'd like that. So I know who to target, you know, to than in places which are sort of out of nowhere where I don't know who to link those people to. I don't know who my new customers are going to be. Um, but yeah, uh, that's right. And so I think I think it's not obvious, as you say, maybe which way this is going over time. Um, but it is the same problem. It's still chicken and egg, and it's still you know, especially in the case of two-sided markets, which side do you go after first? How do you go after them? Is it straight up marketing? Is it exclusive content deals with the one side in order to get the other side interested? It's not clear. Um, and then, yeah, and then, and then for the for the places where we have sort of elephants in the room, where we have really big players already in place, uh, I think it's difficult to to attract scale. Um, and and also, I think the endpoints are quite different. I think a lot of times, if you're successful, then you just get bought up. By one of the big guys, uh, as opposed to the, the sort of the the old school path of you know growing, getting to scale, right? If you can get close, if you can deliver value to people, uh, then you're suddenly a very attractive acquisition target. And on that note, I think uh, we will uh, end the conversation. This has been really interesting, and uh, thanks for coming on the show, Greg. Uh, thanks very much, Andrew.